Coming from Matthew 6. Short reading. Matthew 6, 13. Jesus tells us here, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. Our Father and our God, a powerful, short passage. May you use this word this morning to encourage the feeble, to tear down the haughty, the proud. But whatever the case, may you use it in each of our lives for good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you know we're kind of in the process of soon sending a child off to college and then another and another and another. And the, the queue has started. So we're in process there evaluating those. And so we're going to take up another offering right now for the <laughs> funding the queue over there. But as far as college goes, I, I didn't go to a major university, Clemson, Chapel Hill, any of that. Nor did I go to a uh, you know, junior college like the uh, <coughs> University of Tennessee. I, <laughs> I, I, went to, I went to Rhodes College, a, a liberal arts school. If you look here at the slide, in Memphis, Tennessee, Rhodes College, we were a liberal arts school, the Fighting Rhodes Lynx. And our mascot here, this lynx cat, would surely strike fear into any opponent out there. But what you didn't know, maybe, was just liberal arts, liberal arts schools. What were the benefit of those? For Donna, she would say all it did was just prepare you for more school. But it, it did have some benefit. Um, liberal arts is founded on what's called the trivium. Try three. Three things. The trivium was uh, literally to the ancient Greeks, going back to Plato, was where three roads meet. And those three roads would converge, and they were the foundation for further education. You had uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And we'll look at this for just a minute. The trivium, this three, this foundation, if we could grab that, yeah. So grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And we're going to apply this to the passage this morning. And here's just kind of where it comes at it. Grammar, you can think of as you're learning grammar, you get the nuts and bolts of what, in this passage, what's the sentence, what's, what are the words there, uh, what, it, what are they represent, and so forth. Logic starts to get more interesting, where you're into the, the meaning of this passage. What is temptation? What's sin? What's evil? Let's make sure not to commit any fallacies in bad reasoning or bad theology. So uh, logic builds upon grammar. And then once you get the grammar and the logic right, then there's the rhetoric, which is where it kind of gets fun. If you were ever in debate, rhetoric, you, you present your ideas, you dialogue around them, you make your case, seek to defend it, and so forth. So rhetoric for us in this passage was where we're going to get to how does this apply to us? How does it hit the heart? But you can't just jump straight to that without making sure you get the foundation right. Otherwise, you're going to be appealing back to it anyway. What, what does that really mean? And so forth. So that's what we're going to do with this passage. Is And you have in your uh, bulletin an outline. So we're going to look very quickly at kind of what, what we're calling the grammar around this passage. Just some of the basics 
to make sure we don't miss anything important. And the first point about Jesus' prayer in general is that we're going to say that it's a pattern, not a model. What do we mean there? If it were a model, if Jesus were saying this is what to pray and only to pray, then this is what we would see from him in Scripture and nothing else. But we only see it a couple times. So he's not saying only pray this. He's mainly saying this is a pattern and there are things in this prayer that I want you to incorporate in your prayers. So in this case, there's something about praying against temptation, praying not to be delivered into evil, that we should be praying in our prayers. The next question is this. What's the correct translation, if you will? Just a month or so ago, someone in the hall grabbed me and said, you know, in this, in this uh, prayer, and we see it sometimes, we pray it in the service, is it lead us not into temptation or keep us from temptation? Because you'll see both of those. Which is it? So we talked about it a little bit, and the, the, the fact is, lead us not into temptation is the correct. If we look at the Greek, what we have here in our ESV Bibles is good translation. In, or keep us from temptation. Lead us is not quite as strong as, you know, keep us away from us. It's saying, don't lead us there, versus keep me away. Okay? So, maybe it's not as strong. But... In a sense, it doesn't really matter, and here's why. If we look at the verse, and if you look here, what we're going to call is a, a term parallelism. So if you look at first the, the proverb on the bottom, on the bottom here, the proverbs use a lot of what's called parallelism, where you have one phrase, and then the second phrase kind of amplifies or gives a different facet of it, but says essentially the same thing. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That's a parallel there saying, be wise, don't be foolish. In our passage, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Different facet, essentially saying the same thing. Don't take me into temptation, but if you do, please, please, bottom line, protect me, deliver me from evil. I need your help, Lord. I need your help. Then the last question would be this. If you have uh, a King James Version, the only authorized version, it will likely say uh, the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. So is it evil or evil one? And if we appeal to the Greek on that, really it doesn't decide it for us. In other words, the Greek, Greek says, has the word paneru there, which could be either masculine genitive or neuter genitive. Greek, we, English, we have masculine and feminine. Greek has masculine, feminine, and neuter. If it's masculine, which it could be, that would point to the evil one, which would be the devil. If it's neuter, then that would be more likely an all-encompassing type of evil. So just think of it this way. If we think of evil, okay, where does evil attack you, attack me, entice us into sin? Surely the devil at the top. He's the father of lies. He's the one who tempted Adam and Eve. But he's not the only 
source of evil. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not, by any means, uh, co-equal with God on that. Again, so there are other ways that you could be tempted to evil. The devil, again, the worst, but there's the world. The world can tempt you into sin, into evil, and your sin nature, my sin nature, can tempt me into evil. So, contextually, I would say I would want to be praying, not just keep me from the evil one, the devil, but keep me, Lord, from all evil. The world, myself, the devil, lead me not there. If I do go there, please rescue me. All right, so there's the grammar. There's the basics. Does that get us somewhere? Yes, it gets us a step towards what's going on here. But we know, even as a child, a child can memorize something, know the grammar, and not know what it means. So we need to get into what is the meaning of this passage. And here, our catechism that we read earlier really hits it quite, quite well. That God would either keep us from being tempted to sin, Lord, please keep me away from the temptation. Don't let me even go there. But if it does happen, support, deliver us when we are tempted. Lord, I am desperate that if I get into it, please, please rescue me. And we get to the big idea here, which would be this. Brothers and sisters, we should desire deliverance. We should want it. We should want deliverance from sin. Rather than craving tastes of temptation. Simple fact. We should be desperate. Don't let me go there. If I do, please rescue me. Rather than I can handle it. I can have a little bit of this secret sin nobody knows about. And I can handle it. In the end, life is a war. Life is a war. Even here in America, where we don't quite get that sometimes. This isn't an all-inclusive vacation where we're just hanging out at the pool. Hey, I'm a little uncomfortable. Let me pray. Let me ask off to room service. You know, give me some more drinks, give me some more snacks. I'm a little uncomfortable. No. Prayer is saying to the commander, I'm desperate. This is hard. Life is a war. If you don't help me, I may not make it. I am desperate, Lord. Help me. Help me. And we get to kind of the gist of the whole Sermon on the Mount as a whole with this in a microcosm because Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be like them. Don't be like them. You'll see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is telling the disciples, don't be like them. So even as we pray, there is a desperate nature to our prayer that's saying, you must deliver me. This is not about life just being a vacation. So, some points on this as far as the logic goes, as far as the meaning of this passage. First one is this. Do we, do we need to know about sin? A little three-letter word, kind of archaic. 
You might remember a couple weeks ago I mentioned there was a lady in the New York Times who wrote. She said when she grew up in the church, she was kind of uh, miffed about all the rules, and they made her feel bad, and so forth. And so she determined, as she got older, she was going to raise her family apart from the church. We're going to have nothing to do with the rules and regulations and this being right or wrong or any of that. So one day her daughter came to her and asked her, said, Mom, what is, what is sin? So Mom said, she had a revelation. I have raised my daughter to not know sin. Yes, look what I have done. And indeed, look what she has done. Because God does care about sin, and it matters more what he thinks than what we think or what she thought. God cares, and it absolutely matters. And so we need to beware of being tempted towards sin. But then especially now in our culture, what about evil? Evil Is evil just in the eye of the beholder? Like You could call this evil. Well, not really. This society says this is that. Just in the eye of the beholder. The, uh, the theologian, just this past week, theologian Lady Gaga said this in a message to Mike Pence. You're the worst representative of what it means to be a Christian. Why? Because his wife is teaching in a Christian school that takes a stance on marriage, sexuality issues, things of that nature. The school has had that position for years and years and years, but now it comes to the forefront. So Lady Gaga continued, I'm a Christian woman, and what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice, and everybody is welcome. So you can take all that disgrace, Mr. Pence, and look yourself in the mirror, and you'll find it right there. So she was calling him evil and wrong because his wife teaches somewhere that says this is evil and wrong. A bit inconsistent. Inconsistent. So we're, we're in a society that will speak of evil, even though there are no absolutes, but doesn't really know what evil is. But you, you might say, okay, well, well yeah, I, I get that. But I'm a Christian, and I don't wrestle with that point. I, I get what evil is, and I get what sin is. But there is something interesting in this passage the fact that it says, lead us not in temptation, well, does that mean the flip of it, that God does lead us into temptation if he's not leading us into temptation? Is that something going on there? So here's something important we need to land on with this. James 1.13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So what we say is God is not the author. He is not the direct cause of evil. Now, if we're honest about it, you look through your Bible, you will see in the Old Testament, especially passages that put right next to each other, God and a spirit of evil, sending this, sending that. But the fact of the matter is God is not the direct cause of evil. He's sovereign he ordains everything that came, comes to pass. He will even use what evil does for good. He is sovereign. 
And this is one of the beautiful things about the Reformed faith is we will affirm for sure God is sovereign, ordains everything, but if you do evil, if I do evil, it's my fault. I am culpable, I am responsible for the evil that I do, God did not do it. God does not tempt us to evil. He does test us. Again, looking at this biblically, Deuteronomy 8 talks about God testing the people. God tests us. God tests us for our good. Classic example, God with Abraham. God tests Abraham. Will you give your son, your one and only son, who you've waited for year and years and years, will you give him to me? You say, well, God, in, in his foreknowledge, he knew that Abraham would go through with it, would be willing to do it. So why would God put him to the test? If God knew the answer already, what did this benefit God? It didn't benefit God. It benefited Abraham. Abraham was blessed through that test to realize, yes, Lord, you do mean more to me than even my son. And he was blessed for going through that test. The final point here in the logic is the question this, that is often asked by the unbeliever. If we look here at the statement, how, how, how can there be evil at all? And the, uh, the statements go this way. You can see that. If there were an all-good and all-powerful God, he would not allow evil to exist. Evil exists. Therefore, there is no all-good and all-powerful God. This is a little logical syllogism. Is it valid? If you know logic, that's valid. Uh-oh. <laughs> what do we do? It's valid. But it's not true. You see a hole in that. Go to that first statement. There's a hole in that. So Dr. James Anderson helps with a couple examples in this. He points out this, which will help us to modify that first statement. He points out... If somebody were here and you were to just go, Dr. Johnson were to just go and take his leg off, that's not good, is it? Just whack somebody's leg off. But what if Dr. Johnson, as a surgeon, realizes that's a chronically infected leg and I need to take it off and therefore it will have benefit for that person? Or... What about the case of, of suicide? We would say suicide is not, not good. I mean, it's, it's not good, for sure. But what about the Navy SEAL, Mike Mansour, years ago, who leapt upon the grenade to save his comrades, and he died in their place? So what that points us to is there is a modification of that first statement. And it's simply this. What we can see is, if there were an all-good and all-powerful God, then he would not allow evil to exist without good reason, without morally, morally sufficient reasons, without a greater good. 
evil exists. Therefore, if there is an all-good and all-powerful God, then he has good reason for allowing evil to exist. So the fact is, evil does exist. It does not disprove the reality of a God as well. So we might say, okay, that, that helps. I get, I get some of the, the logic there, the, the theology around that. But we even think, you know, the Apostle Paul, he would dialogue and debate and so forth and present good arguments and the, the wise people would come and say, oh, we like this argument. Well, we like this one, I like this one. And they just kind of evaluate, you know, that was good, that was bad. But it never got to their heart. Jesus wants this to get to our heart, your heart, my heart. And as you think about just the fact that the disciples asked Jesus the question, what should we pray? I mean, honestly, if I was there, I think I would have been asking something else. Hey, will you tell me how to do this miracle? Can I teach me to walk on water? Can you help me heal? We mock the disciples so often, but they ask the right question. The more important one, help me to commune with God. Teach me to pray. I need to know how to pray. You need to know how to pray. And here's the convicting question. This petition right here. Why don't we pray this more often? Do you, do I really pray this as we should? Lord, we might say, keep me away from evil, bad stuff. Keep me safe. Keep me from temptation. Do you, do I really pray that and mean that? Or do we want to keep this little pet sin? Why don't we pray this? Let's consider a few reasons the first one, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us this. If you think you're standing firm, beware lest you fall. Simple point, sometimes we're a bit too proud in our Christianity. I'm a Christian. I don't need to ask this anymore. I can handle this. I got it. Almost like the frat boy, I can handle my alcohol and not go too far. We need to be desperate and say, Lord, I need your help. I could fall any time. Then the second reason could be this. I mentioned that. We want to keep our pet sins. Do you really, do I really want to be well? Do you really want to be well? Jesus asked the man at the pool of Siloam, do you really want to be healed? You've been here this long. Maybe you've gotten comfortable being taken care of. Do you really want to be healed? Do you, I want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? It's just a little bit of porn. It's a little bit of cursing. A little bit of dressing this way, immodestly, a little teasing. Do you really want the holiness? As I said earlier, life's a war. This isn't just a kid's t-ball game where play hard, have fun, Win or lose, doesn't matter. Everybody gets snacks afterwards. Mom, team mom brought snow cones and trophies, and everybody's happy, happy. It doesn't really matter. Life is a war. Life is a war. 
I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, good. Your identity is sealed in Christ. The devil's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything about that. He's going to attack you until the end. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle. And the devil will seek to destroy you. The devil will seek to destroy you. And this isn't like, I always think of the line, Rocky with Apollo Creed, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. It's today. It's a battle that goes today, tomorrow, and on and on. C.S. Lewis has the story of uh, the ghost, angel, and the lizard. And what it was, there were ghosts who were headed to hell. But they were given one more chance. You can go and look at heaven and see if you want to change your mind. And so they go and they all go back on the bus. We choose to go to hell. Except one. One ghost is walking up to heaven. And an angel comes out and sees the ghost coming. Notice the ghost kind of doing this. As the angel gets closer, he sees he's talking to something. There's this red lizard on his shoulder. So the angel gets closer. And the ghost is fussing at that. Shut up. Leave me alone. The angel comes with hands of fire outstretched and says, I'll kill it for you. Well, it's okay. I, I, I don't want to bother you with the trouble. I'll kill it for you. Well, it's asleep for now. And I, I, I think I can control it. I'll kill it now. Well, let me go get my doctor's opinion, see what he says. And by the way, if it's so bad, why haven't you killed it before now? I'll kill it now. The lizard whispered something else in the ghost's ear, something about being natural to be there, promises to be good from now on. But the ghost, for once, realizes his peril and asks for help. The angel takes the lizard, throws it to the ground, and kills it immediately. And then something fascinating happens. That lizard transforms into a beautiful stallion. And the ghost gets on it and rides away into glory. So indeed, we so often don't want to pray this prayer because we want to keep that pet sin, that awful lizard... And we don't realize what we can grasp onto if we put off and then put on and grasp and take what the Lord offers for us. And so often in America, that, that red lizard, in a sense, could be what we'll say is this. In America, we're good at being pragmatic, right? The end justifies the means, and we can find some good means to get to that end, and we're pragmatic, and that's usually quite good, except when prag being pragmatic becomes pragmatism. And instead, in, instead of getting God's things God's way, we go for God's thing that is good, 
by the devil's way. So maybe God's thing, it's, it's inti- intimacy and love. That's a good thing. But will I get it God's way or the devil's way? Could be that person at work where the conversations are going a little bit too long, getting a little bit too close. Well, I want the intimacy, but are you getting it God's way? So often we need to slay that lizard and be done with it rather than the pet sin. And when we do, we get home and we see how much more beautiful our spouse is now that we've killed that lizard. And then the final thought is this. Why do we not pray this as we should? And brothers and sisters, I am calling us to pray this and myself also. We don't realize often the devil as the tempter and the accuser. Satan, the word means, accuser. Brian Chapel tells the story of a young miner in a rural community where this man as a young miner was injured in the mine, was left as an invalid, and had to watch life pass by through the window of his house as he saw his friends grow older and prosper and have families and children and grandchildren as he watched from the window as life went by. One day, a man came to visit and said, I hear you're a Christian. How can you say that God loves you when you're like this? He said, well, you know, the devil sits some days right where you sit. And he says to me, look at your friends how well they're doing. How can you say God loves you? Look at your condition. How can you say that God loves you? And the man said, and I take the devil by the hand and I walk him to the hill at Calvary and I say, there, there is where my God loves me. So brothers and sisters, if we are desperate and deliberate in how we deal with sin, if we, how we deal with temptation, we will experience great blessing in eternity and even for now. So let us pray and be desperate that, Lord, deliver us, help us from the temptation and be willing to kill it, our pet sins. Let us pray. Our Father.